<laughs> Good morning. Welcome to our worship service and also our curry cook-off. Glad you could make it. We want to welcome a few brothers and sisters from visiting churches this morning. So we have... Uh, Jackson Charm, visiting from the Singapore Church. If you guys could stand up. I know you're here somewhere. Good to have you here. And also, Renee, who is visiting from the Brisbane Church. Good to have you here. And if, if there's someone else visiting from one of our sister churches, go ahead and stand up and we'll just say, hey. All right, no one. Oh, oh, oh it's Dee. She's from here. So it's great that after, afterwards we're going to have some great fellowship and great food tasting. And I thought, just, in, I, I didn't make a curry, by the way. Uh, I just wouldn't be fair, you know. So, but, <laughs> but, but I, did, I did think, you know, since we're having this competition, I might as well prepare my palate. So I thought, this week I'll do some, some curry tasting. Okay, so I went out and ordered a nice pelican curry. Yeah, you probably never heard of it, but it, it tasted okay. But the bill was enormous. <laughs> uh, yeah, Lalisa's learning about dad jokes. <laughs> yeah. So, just so we can really dive in, focus for the next 25 minutes, let's, let's pray. Let's read 2 Corinthians 12, talk about three points, and then we'll have some great fellowship and food afterwards. God, we're so grateful we can worship you and take communion this morning to, to really focus our minds and hearts on Jesus. And I pray that as we read these words, that they really inspire us to become more like him as, as a person and as a church. We can become like your son as well. For all this in Jesus' name, amen. So 2 Corinthians 12 is where we're reading from this morning. We'll read this chapter and talk about three points from this text. Starting in verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I really appreciate John's welcome as well. Very insightful. Borderline heretical. No, just kidding. <laughs> that was good. You, uh, so you've, if nothing else, you've learned something new this morning. The word curry is in the Bible. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 12, starting at verse 1, I must go on boasting, although there is nothing to be gained. I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. The Jewish scheme of thinking was that there was three heavens, and at least he's saying he reached kind of the pinnacle, the climactic heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I do know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. So third heaven, paradise, seem, seem to be the same thing in this passage. And heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I'll boast about a man like that, but I'll not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Of course, as Paul is talking about himself here, but he's doing it to really make a point to the church in Corinth. In verse 6, he continues, Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool, because I'd be speaking the truth. But I refrain so that no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or what I say. Or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore... In order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delighted weaknesses. It sounds kind of weird as you hear this being read aloud. I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I've made a fool of myself, but you drove me to it. I ought to have been commended by you, for I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles, even though I am nothing. I persevered in demonstrating among you the marks of a true apostle, including signs, wonders, and miracles. How were you inferior to the other churches, except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me for this wrong. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. So he visits once to plant the church, a second time to sort out some of the issues. Didn't go well, so he takes a step back, kind of regathered his thoughts, written a letter, and now he's going to visit the church for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Be that as it may, I have not been a burden to you. Yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. Did I exploit you through any of the men I sent to you? I urged Titus to go to you and I sent our brother with him. Titus did not exploit you, did he? Did we not walk in the same footsteps by the same spirit? Have you been thinking all along that we are defending ourselves to you? We have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ. And everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be. And you may not find me as you want me to be. I fear there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. I am afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you, and I'll be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they have indulged. Wow. There's a lot going on in this passage and a lot we could talk about. And in chapters 10 through 13, again, he's, he's preparing the church for his third visit. And so through these chapters, you really see Paul pouring out his heart, trying to restore his relationship with the church because these super apostles have come into Corinth and won the favor of the church. And now he's trying to regain it through writing these letters. Well, let's talk about three things that really are displayed in this passage and I mean, you can't not miss this point about power and weakness. There, there are a lot of interesting bits in this, in this chapter here, but one of, one, of the really high, one of the real highlights of it is this idea of there being power and weakness. And what, what's crazy is that Paul had spent many months in Corinth and never talked about this vision that we see him writing here about. And so that's significant because these these super apostles come to Corinth and they impress the church with these great visions. 
and these great revelations. And Paul says, I've been with you the whole time, and I've never once shared with you this surpassingly great revelation that I've actually had. And that, because the, the, the church in Corinth is kind of attracted to that. And as you look in this passage, it's quite a vision, isn't it? You know, verse 4, verse 4 says that it was inexpressible. What he heard was inexpressible. Meaning, even if he had the language to communicate it, he couldn't. It's like trying to explain, you know, if I were to try to explain the internet to my son, Luke. He, he just doesn't have the reference point. It's, it's inexpressible because he hasn't had any experiences, really, that help him understand the internet. Well, except for devices now, I guess, maybe. What am I saying? Point not valid. But you get the idea, like, when you're trying to explain something to someone who hasn't yet had the reference points, there's no sticking point. And so Paul, his, you know, imagine he's, he's in this throne room of heaven and he hears whatever is being talked about in heaven, but there's no way he would even be able to communicate that, especially to immature Christians like those in Corinth. And even if he could, verse 4 goes on to say that no one was permitted to tell. And, and that's more literally translated, I can't even utter a sound about it. It's unlawful. I'm not permitted. So whatever he, imagine being in the throne room of God and hearing the discussion and seeing what's going on and then coming to church Sunday morning. Boy, let me tell you about last night. Wouldn't what, what you, you overflow with what you've seen and heard? But Paul said, I, I can't even talk about it. And here are these super apostles in Corinth say, let me tell you about what I've done. Let me tell you about what I've heard and what I've seen. And Paul said, man, I, I can't even express it. Because there's nothing even to really be gained about that. It's just crazy. And the result of this vision, you know, if someone had something like this, this day and age, we'd put them on talk shows. They'd have TED Talks. and Hey, tell us about your vision. Tell us, tell us what you heard. Tell us what you saw. And for Paul, instead of all that publicity, he gets a thorn in his flesh. Like it's, it's tormenting him. It's this messenger from Satan in verse 7 and it's tormenting him. And that's a whole other idea. But, but God, God permits this messenger of Satan to torment Paul in order that he can understand the power of God's grace more deeply. And this is, this is wild, okay? And this idea of tormenting is not just like somebody whispering in Paul's ear. Tormenting is, is slapping. It's the same word used when they hit Jesus and they start to beat Jesus. And so there's something very painful going on for Paul in this thorn. Now you can read all the speculation. All these scholars think, oh, it was, it was his eyesight. He's blinded on the road to Damascus. And when he goes around, he's, he's having trouble with his eyesight. And, and he can't see well. And he's having trouble seeing. Maybe, I don't know. Or maybe he was a stutterer. Because people say that, you know, you sound impressive in your letters, but when we hear you in person, yeah, not so much. Maybe he was a stutter. Maybe he had malaria. Maybe he was hindered by some disease. Maybe he was epileptic. Maybe he was beaten so much that he looked just distorted. I don't know what it was, but what they do say is that it was very painful, it was very obvious, and it hindered his ministry sometimes. And so imagine that. Imagine you've seen like God's living room. 
But you can't talk about it. And there's something like preventing you. And, and you want to express you, but you're not permitted. And it's just like this painful messenger constantly preventing you from expressing it. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. And think about it. Think about Paul if he had not had that messenger. How puffed up he could have been. You know, going around to the churches and, hey, look, you, does anybody want to sign my, anybody want my autograph? I've been in the throne room of heaven. I've heard these things. But he can't even talk about these things. Instead, it changed his perspective to help him understand grace. And that's what he says at the end. You know, I delight in all this stuff for when I am weak, I am strong. It's crazy. I love looking at sports logos. For teams, because I don't know what you, you guys' logos is for your teams. Hopefully, it's something intimidating and awesome. But, you know, for, for most sports teams, they have kind of an intimidating mascot, an intimidating logo, for instance. You know, in the NRL, if you want to play the Titans or the Raiders or the Warriors, that all sounds like frightening and intimidating. You don't want to go up against those kind of guys, right? And they probably choose those mascots for a certain reason. So on one end of the scale, you have these kind of powerful images and powerful logos. But who in their right mind, this is one of my favorite logos, would ever choose this as your sports mascot? And this is from college in America, okay? I present to you the Santa Cruz banana slugs. <laughs> this is real, Okay. Very real. Now, this is a banana peel with glasses and buck teeth reading Plato. That's his book he's reading. He's reading Plato. So it's like, okay, here comes a bunch of banana peels with glasses reading Plato. That's not intimidating at all. But imagine you go to play them and you lose. Hey, man, we got beat by the banana slugs. <laughs> That's, that's just like unexpected. It's not supposed to happen. It's shocking if you lose to the flat out banana slugs. It's not, but, but in some way, that's the way the world thinks. There's supposed to be this power and this might and this intimidation. And that's what the world is attracted to. And when we see this, we think there's no way. And Paul says, actually, that's the way of the gospel. When you're at your moment of limitation and greatest weakness, that's when Christ actually displays his power through you and through me. And it's shocking. It doesn't make sense. The world doesn't understand it in the same way no one would believe the banana slugs won an actual game. It just doesn't happen. But I, 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 it's, it's kind of... Interesting, because you can say, well, Paul, yeah, obviously had some kind of big deal. He had some thorn, some, some messenger of Satan. That's not really, I, I doubt any of us have something that significant, you know, in our lives where it's like a, a messenger of Satan. That's, that's crazy to think about. But I think there's a truth here that applies to all of us. And it's that there is great power when we see and understand our weakness. Because we all have flaws, right? We all have limitations. We all have inadequacies. We all have these areas of weaknesses. And those are the very areas that ought to display God's power. They ought to be, they ought to be showcasing how powerful God really is. But I think there's a scale of times of, of things that we, we use these weaknesses to justify 
why we do what we do instead of letting God's power transform us into something greater. You know, I've done this, and, and we've all probably heard this or done this, and we use our weaknesses as kind of a get-out-of-jail-free card. And say, you know, we all have these weaknesses and flaws, and, but it becomes a deflection mechanism. Or say, well, this, the, the reason why I can't do such and such, or the reason why I do this or that is, is because of, I'm, I'm inadequate in this way. I'm flawed in this way. I'm limited in this way. So don't really challenge me in this area. Because this is just my limitations. This is who I am. I'm flawed and we're all flawed. And the very thing that's meant to display God's power becomes kind of a deflection mechanism. Now, I know I understand we need to be sympathetic toward people that have hard, challenging issues and all of these kind of things. We need to be patient and we need to be understanding. But at the same time, those are the very things that should release God's power. Not become mechanisms for deflection. Those are the very things that really show how, how much more powerful is it when you see someone with limitations, flaws, and inadequacies being transformed. Then you know it's not them. It's actually the power of God. Or you, you know, people say, I have a hard time trusting. And, and they have lengthy in, explanations of why they have a hard time trusting. And, and that's why I'm not good with relationships. And the response to that is, I'm so sorry. I, I'm sorry that you've had a hard time trusting that those things have happened to you. But don't use that as an excuse not to change. Yeah. Yeah. Delight in that weakness. And let that transform you. Let people see, man, look at the way they've had a hard time trusting. But look at God use them to actually trust people. That's the solution to that. Or, or people say, my circumstances are so challenging. And we all have lengthy explanations of why our circumstances are so challenging. And that's why it's hard for me to be committed. Because it's, it's just life is hard. And you know what? I hear that and I understand that. And that does sound very challenging. But the response is, delight in those things and let the power of God transform you. Instead of using those as, as def deflection mechanisms. Or sometimes we become ashamed of our flaws, or our inadequacies, or our limitations. But those are the very things that display the power of God. Another thing is, but both wherever you fall on this scale or this spectrum, it all really says, I don't really understand the power of God. I'm too focused on my limitations, my weaknesses, and my inadequacies. But look what verse 9 says. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weaknesses. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That idea of resting is throughout the Old Testament where God leaves heaven, comes into the temple, and starts to dwell. Same idea in John 1 where Jesus comes to earth and starts to dwell with humanity. The very power of God dwells on us in our weaknesses when we allow it. And that's what Paul is saying to the church. And that's what God is saying to all of us. Whatever our weakness or our limitation, hey, let's really embrace those. And let the power of God transform us. Amen? Amen. Secondly, we need to be grateful and learn how to have gratitude. Come on, bro. If you just read this chapter but out of context, you could still kind of feel it. But when you read these letters that he writes to the church in Corinth, you can tell he went above and beyond to really help this church. And in verse 11, he says, you know, you guys like boasting, and, and, but you've driven me to boast about myself. 
I've made a fool of myself. But you drove me to it. And what he says after that, I ought to have been commended by you. What does that mean? And it's wild because when Paul first shows up in Corinth, he plants the church, people become Christians, it's awesome. And then he leaves, some trouble happens. And then when he visit, visits, the, the trouble escalates. So he says, okay, I'm not going to pressure you too hard. I'll withdraw and I'll write some letters. And, and then the false apostles come in and they start to win the church over. And then Titus comes in and he repairs it a little bit. And Paul says, okay, now things are going well. And, and now they're once again like starting to pull away from Paul. And, and it's crazy to think about. You know, and there, there's this idea that, Paul, you're probably a false apostle. You, you're not real. You're hiding away from us. But he was their very father in the faith. And there's this speculation in verse 13 as well. He says, you know, how were you inferior to the other churches except that I was never a burden to you? Forgive me for this wrong. Again, we've said this before, but other people charged money. To lead the church in Corinth. Paul didn't. He took money from other churches. Now what happened though. Is that when he says. Hey we need to take up a collection. For the church in Jerusalem. They start to say. Oh yeah sure Paul. Sure. We know you don't take money for a salary. But all of a sudden you want a collection. Sure. And you want to take it all the way across to Jerusalem. Oh sure Paul. We know you're crafty. We know you're trick. We know you're a trickster. No, I'm trying to help another church, but they're thinking he's, he's trying to trick them and fool them. And all this time he says, you've driven me to boast about stuff that I don't even need to boast about. I'm the real deal. And in verse 15 and 16, he says, you know what? I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. And I have not been a burden to you, yet crafty fellow that I am, I caught you by trickery. That, like, even though I'm coming again, I'm still not going to take money from you. I'm still going to continue the way that I operate. Even though you don't think it's legit. And, 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 and all through this, you see him like pouring out his life. Verse 19, you see it more like, I'm not trying to prove myself to you. I'm, I'm in the presence of God. I'm not concerned about power. I'm just pouring myself out to you because I love you like a father. I understand I'm weak. I understand I'm limited. But all of that kind of stuff, this is like parental language. I'll spend everything for you, right? That's kind of the challenge of parenting as you raise kids. This is what Paul's saying. It's like, you, you should have been grateful for the way that I've interacted with you. This is, this is intense. You know, you feel this as a parent. For instance, I love this quote. The quickest way for a parent to get a child's attention is to sit down and look comfortable. Like the moment, you know, you do it, you sit down and that's the very moment that everything happens. I was just trying to sit down for one second. You should have been grateful for my moment of rest. All that we've been doing. When I tell my kids I'll do something in a minute, what I'm really saying is, please forget. Hey, can we do that? Yeah, just a minute. Just a minute. You know, but, but, but as a parent, you, you kind of feel like, oh, man. And as they grow, you're just like, I hope you understand that making your lunches and all these different activities and driving you around and etc. I just hope and beg and pray you're grateful at some point. <laughs> right? You feel that, right? As a parent. And that's, what, that's essentially what's going on here. Man, I, I, have, I have slaved to help you understand the gospel. I just wish you'd be grateful. 
show some gratitude. And I think this is a big point because, you know, it's not like that, that, that directly parallels us, but we need to have graciousness in our relationships with one another. There needs to be deep gratitude. And in the world, when there's conflict or stuff goes on, it's easy to cut people off. It's easier to be closed or it's easier to criticize people. But the gospel tells us we need to show grace to each other. And we need to be grateful for each other. And we need to have gratitude for each other. And one way to evaluate this is what do you say about your brothers and sisters when they're not present? Because Paul says, you, I, I ought to have been commended by you. You didn't even speak up for me. These guys came in and you said squat. Why? You should have been grateful. And, and, and I think we learn that, you know, often our tongues reveal our hearts. What we say about people, but we need to be grateful for each other in the fellowship. This is our spiritual family. You know, and they got all these crazy accusations against Paul. He's, he's not real. He doesn't speak well. He's probably taking money. But they don't have all of the information. And I think that's another thing in our relationship. Sometimes we form these opinions and accusations without having all the info. That's not gracious. That's not showing gratitude. Paul's a crafty fellow. They, they don't know what he's really trying to do. He's trying to help this church in Jerusalem. And I, and I think that the wild thing is God has all the information about you and me. Every single detail. Yet he's extravagantly gracious toward us. Wildly gracious. And, and, and through the message of the gospel, we're supposed to say, man, I've been given so much. God is so gracious to me. I can easily be gracious with my brother and sister. I can show gratitude. for. In fact, when you look through the scriptures, it's one of God's defining attributes. is His graciousness. This is just a small sampling, but look at these passages where that very phrase shows up. The Lord was gracious to Sarah. The Lord was gracious to Hannah. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them because the gracious hand of our God was on us. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me. But you, Lord, are Compassionate and gracious God. And I can't read the last one because the microphone's in the way. But you get the idea. Man, it's, it's God extravagantly, you know, giving us grace. And we, we have to learn to show gratitude and be thankful for that because it's demonstrated in our relationships. You know, we, we need to be great. All this stuff being set up on the stage, this... These microphones, these speakers, these wires. I don't know what in the world John Salud's doing up here, but each week it like gets, Paul and I were like, there's going to be a booth and lights and fireworks and man, it just gets bigger and bigger. And, but we need to be grateful for the people that set up the chairs and for the people that prepared the curry and helped the kids ministry. And do, man, there just needs to be overwhelming gratitude for one another. It needs to be flowing from us and on and on and on. But that's what, that's what the point here is. We need to show gratitude toward one another. On, Lastly, there's a good grief. That's often a phrase, good grief. And, but there's a good grief that we find in this passage as well. Verse 21, I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you. And I will be grieved. I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented. And, and what's happened here is 
you know, Corinth is a bit tricky. It's, it's probably one of the most messed up churches Paul has to deal with as a truth. And you see him really trying to get him on track. Really trying to straighten him out. Really trying to help him. And sometimes his efforts work for a little bit. And then they drift right back. And then he writes another letter. And it works for a little bit. And then they drift right back. And then he sends somebody. And it works for a little bit. And it, but on and on and on. And so he's like, man, I'm giving you so much opportunity to really straighten this out. And, and I'm hoping on my third visit, I'm hope, I hope and pray that you sort it out. And I, I, I don't want to come and exercise discipline. I don't want to come and be strict, but I'm afraid that's what's going to happen. And you know what? I'm grieved over that. I'm not excited about that. It grieves me. It's this idea, of, again, of a father, like well, dealing with a rebellious child. It causes me so much grief because I want you to do the best, but I don't think that's what's going to happen when I turn up. And he gives them time. And you know, I, I, I'm coming. Get, get ready. There's still opportunity to repent. There's still opportunity to change. But you know what? I think when I come, God's going to humble me. And there's going to be a lot of grief. And, and you have to see this connection here that Paul's greatest amount of grief, it was a good grief because it was aimed at helping people. He was grieved at this church because they weren't changing. And it's this godly kind of grief. You see the same grief in Genesis 6. When God looks out at humanity and evil starting to organize itself and spread throughout the world, God is like, he's grieved. Ah, my heart goes out because I want the best for them. That's the exact same thing we see here with Paul. Is, I want the best for them, but they're just, I'm going to prepare for the worst when I visit. And I think throughout life, you know, we get, we get lots of opportunities for heartbreaks and disappointments, right? Lots of opportunities to grieve and, and experience grief. And, you know, when you're in primary school, you, your best friends, you know, next day, they're not your best friends. Like, oh, no, I'm, I'm grieving because my best friends has changed and, and whatever that looks like. And, and then you start to have your first crush. And I don't know when that happens anymore, but whenever that happens. And then that person doesn't like you. and You start grieving. And then, and then as you get older, you start losing things that you really like. And, oh man, there's a, a sense of grief and, and on and on and on. But I think humanity as a whole starts to grieve about things that aren't eternal. And sometimes we can subtly be influenced into that. And, it, and there's a grief happening with humanity saying, man, the world's not right. We need to fix the political system. I'm grieving because it, and yeah, that's a good cause. But that's not the good grief that God wants us to have. He wants it to be aimed at humanity. Not these temporary causes. And, and again, there's plenty of good causes to invest in, okay? You read the news, climate control. Hey, that's a good thing to be invested. But you know what? That's a temporary thing. We need to be grieving that people aren't really understanding the gospel. That needs to be the main source of our good grief. That's what breaks God's heart the most. Is his children are not listening to him. And yes, he's upset about the planet. And yes, he's upset about all this other stuff. But his main source of grief is man, people are not listening. 
And I think that that should really help us to increase our grief, the good kind of grief for people. Again, it's okay to be in all these causes, but, but the majority of it needs to be, man, let's get invested in people. We need to help people. Because everything else is temporary. We will live forever. And we invest our grief in the lives of others. As we conclude this morning, I pray that you and I and us as a church can become a church that really, really does embrace the power of God. We're all limited. We're all flawed. We're all inadequate. But those are the very moments that become the vehicle for God's transforming power. And let's show gratitude toward each other in our speech, in our actions. Let's always assume the best of each other, giving each other the grace that God has given us. And let's become more and more like Christ as we see a community that needs to feel our grief for a humanity that needs to be reconnected to God. Let's become a church like that. Amen.